Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, we're in a series uh, called Crystal, and we're trying to find clarity uh, about our spiritual lives. So whether you're seeking faith and you're sort of wondering about it, or you are struggling with faith. I read uh, uh, Packer's new book called Taking Faith Seriously last week. He talks about, say he coined a little phrase for me, the fuzzification of faith he used. I thought, yeah, that fits with this series, the fuzzification of faith. So if your faith has gotten fuzzy and it needs clarity, that's what we've been doing in Colossians chapter 1. This is the, the sort of the fifth Uh, talk in this series. So if you're just joining us, we've been in Colossians 1. We've spent the last two weeks looking at a hymn, a special, unique picture that we have of Christ in uh, a very beautiful picture of who he is. Because Paul is, you say, why is that hymn in Colossians? Well, because Paul is trying to say that you can't have spiritual clarity without truly understanding who Jesus is. There really is there's no life, there's no realities, no relationship with God, there's no hope. And so at the beginning of the hymn, he makes this declaration. He says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the fullness of God. So in him, we get a complete picture of who God is. If you want to know what God is like and who he is and how he operates, what he's doing, it's... In Christ, and there's nowhere else to look. So Paul will make the case that if you know him, if you're learning him, then you're complete. You don't need anything else. He alone reflects who God is fully, and if you know him, then you have the full revelation, understanding of who God is and what he's doing in your life in all these different respects. So Christ is the key to everything. That's what he's saying. And so when we look at our whole text here, we realize that this hymn, if you weren't with us these last two weeks, that our hymn has really two pieces to it. That Christ is sort of preeminent over creation. That's the first part of this hymn. And then the second part of the hymn is that also he's the firstborn from the dead. So this is sort of the redemptive piece. He's got to somehow reconcile all things to himself. And so the, the... the hymn assumes a problem that whatever God created, as perfect as it was, it, something went wrong and then he had to come to the rescue of it. And that required the blood, his own blood on a cross. So we're dealing with the same principal character in both realities, creation and redemption. And you get the, you get the feeling that you don't understand the story behind the cosmos or behind creation unless you understand redemption. God created in order to redeem. So you have both pieces. So something goes wrong and we see God in both realities. So because things went wrong, we get to see what God would, how, how God solves the problem. And he does it in the same person that he created with. In Christ he created and in Christ he redeems. And you can't get a full picture of God without the presence of evil and sin in the world. We wouldn't know this side of God. We wouldn't know his reconciliation powers 
So, what do we see? What do we see? Well, I think we saw last week, when you look at this, you go from creation, and then it says here, and he's head of the body, the church. So we went from creation to church, and then down here is the cross. So when we look at this, we said, yeah, this is a pretty radical picture. In just six verses, we go from being over everything to being dead. And so, and the flow of the hymn is sort of moving this way, even though we said that you really don't understand uh, that even though the flow of the hymn is moving this direction, it's actually moving upward so that this actually explains this. Uh, and you'll see the other picture. But the question, uh, how does God end up dead? How does, how does he go from supreme over everything, firstborn, uh, from celestial heights to sort of the gory depths of the cross? So one minute he's over and above and beyond creation. The next minute he's dead in history. You say, what does that tell us about God? What does it clear up for us? Well, I think it's important to understand, first of all, this is unprecedented in our understanding of God and religion because typically you have a God who's up here, wants to stay up here. You don't have gods entering our reality. And so that sets Christianity apart immediately because he enters our reality. Craddock, one of, my, one of the writers said this, the cross firmly fixes, hear this, firmly fixes the central event of the purposes of God for the whole creation in the terra firma of history. In other words, in in history, Christ on a cross explains all the rest of reality. So even though the movement of the hymn is this way, it's not until you get down here that you really understand everything back here. Why did he create? To redeem. Where do we see God fully at the cross? There's a date and a, and, a, and a location for God's greatest act. And so he created to redeem. And so there's another side of this picture. Not only does he come and die on a cross, but the text said he's firstborn from among the dead. So he starts, he is the beginning. He starts a whole new life. So whatever was created here is recreated in the resurrection. This is a really important thing to see, the power in the resurrection. You see the gospel here. You see God becoming a man. This is the gospel. God becomes a man, dies in our place on a cross, rises from the dead, and newly creates, recreation. So what's the significance of that? Well, the resurrection puts whatever's going to happen at the end It brings it forward into history so that if you know this Savior, if you are, if you die with him and you are risen with him spiritually, then you are already experiencing recreation in the new transformation because the resurrection, which is going to happen in the end, has now been brought forward into history and you can experience so that whatever God intends to do in all of reality is already beginning to happen in those who know him. That's the power of this resurrection. So there's a recreation. So now he's preeminent again. He started out supreme, came to a cross, rose from the dead, and now he's preeminent again. But this time it's a different kind of preeminence. 
Different kind of supremacy. This time, Jesus is a victor. He has defeated evil and death. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ do. It defeats evil and death. So on this side, now he's a victor. We wouldn't know Christ as a victor. We wouldn't understand victory over sin if Christ hadn't come. So you can see this little hymn uh, just sort of sets reality for us and what Christ has done. It's a beautiful picture in and of itself. And last week, that's kind of where we ended. And I told you there's a few things we can learn from it. I'm going to give you the very simply and practical. I, I'll just be honest with you because you're the second service. Uh, I think I preached the worst sermon I've ever preached in my life last service. And uh, it was a horrible feeling. And uh, uh, I tell you that because I'm going to make this a little bit simpler. I'm going to make this a little bit simpler. And so what I want you to do is just let God speak to you about the truths of this hymn. Um, the first thing I want you to notice is God is both sovereign over creation and redemption, but he is also a sufferer. He is sovereign and he's a sufferer. Now that changes, that, that provides clarity about God that the world seems to struggle with. We all struggle with, individually we struggle with it. Uh, because he's sovereign and he's a sufferer. He's a co-sufferer. God has a, he's in charge of everything. And this is what frustrates us, by the way, when we suffer. How can he be in charge of everything and allow that to happen? And so you, you sort of rightly lash out at him. How does he tolerate that? What kind of a sovereign is he? Well, the cross tells us he's a sufferer. He's not just sovereign sitting up there. When I was, a, when I was in high school, I had this job as an, in a, at an insulation company. And in Florida, to work with insulation is one of the worst things you can possibly do. Okay, go into a new home, put fiberglass all over. The, and what I had to learn over a few summers in high school was to, was to live with insulation, um, you know, fiberglass all over. Um, there was this one particular guy who was probably, he was the best. He was a, a you know, full-grown man taking care of his family doing insulation, but he was the fastest in the company. He could go into, he could go into a newly framed out house and, and hang the insulation faster than anybody, finish a whole house in a day by himself. And I was stuck with him to learn. And he was sort of an angry, mean guy. It was a gr I, I learned real fast that there was a, a real gap between management and the guy hanging the fiberglass. And he would get all mad because sometimes the equipment didn't work and uh, the, the house wasn't fully ready. And they had all these goals. And every day we'd come into the office and they'd say, here's what we want you to accomplish today. And he'd get frustrated, and this was his line. This is what he used, and he used it every time I worked with him. He said, they don't know what they're doing up there in management. They go from their, this was his line, they go from air, their air-conditioned house to their air-conditioned car to their air-conditioned office, back to their air-conditioned car and back to their air-conditioned house. 
Meanwhile, we're out here trying to fix this and do that and dying of fiberglass all over. You know how management and, and the field workers, all the little gap in between it. Well, here's what you can't say about God. You can't say that about God. He doesn't care. No, God's got fiberglass all over him. So you, can, you, you can't ever see him as the, as the uncaring control freak or the one who's in control but can't handle suffering and pain because he is in control of history. That's what the sovereign tells us. But he can be trusted. And that's what the cross tells us. That he didn't avoid pain. Even Camus, a philosopher who was a critic of Christianity, understood this when he looked at Christ and it's sort of, uh, because Every, you know, all philosophies, religion, cultures have a, have a way that they look at pain and suffering. And he said there's something unique about the way Christians do it, even though he was a critic of Christianity. Uh, and he says, if God is no exception, in other words, if he's going to feel pain too, if God is no exception, even if, if if even he has suffered, then we cannot say he doesn't understand or that his sovereignty over suffering is being exercised in a cruel and unfeeling way or that he is a cold king who lets things happen without caring about what we're going through. The cross makes it impossible to say such things since even he has not kept himself immune from our pain. We can trust him. And you see, that's sort of the end of Revelation because in Revelation chapter 5, you have this beautiful picture. Uh, and it's, it's, it sort of tells us that one day there'll be an event, there'll be a moment when we're all standing around a throne and everyone from history, different tribes, nations, languages that have all experienced their own sort of reality in the universe, all gather together in one moment looking for answers. And some of these people have been beheaded. Some of them have suffered tremendous pain, beyond comprehension kinds of pain. And we're all standing shoulder to shoulder together. And whether you've experienced all the pain that everyone else has, you've experienced injustice and you've seen it. Enough to make you standing there sort of, you might be standing around there going like this. Well, let's hear what he has to say about this. Because everyone's gathered around. And John's in Revelation 5 is looking up. And he goes, yeah, there's this book that's got to be open because that book explains everything. It, it, it explains how God is going to judge the world, bring justice to evil. And not just bring justice to evil, because once those seals are opened in Revelation 6, once they're open, that, that moves us along through history up to a point where God doesn't just judge the world. He recreates it. He undoes evil. How's he going to pull all that off? Well... John says, I'm looking around, and I go, this is a great book. This book's got to be open, and I don't see anyone who can open it. There's not a person among us who can do justice to all we've experienced. And John is sitting there, and he says, uh, he says he began to weep. Because that'll make you cry. I thought of this this morning while I was actually reading it to the congregation in the first service. That may be the most hopeless moment in all the world right there. In all of scripture presented. 
The moment when we're all standing around looking for the final answers of the universe and there's no one there to open the book, no one there to perform the justice, no one there to bring the judgment, no one there to fix it. And John begins to cry and I know why. He says he gets tapped on the shoulder by an elder. Stop weeping, John. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the overcomer, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. The lion represents the sovereign, the one in charge. Someone has to be directing and controlling history. Someone has to be able to, someone has to be above and beyond and outside it. Yeah, but some of us might look at that and just say, yeah, but if he's only a lion, he goes from his air-conditioned house to his air-conditioned car to his air. He doesn't know how we feel out here. He doesn't know what, how, the, how we ache for justice. Except that John says, when I looked up there and saw the lion... Between the throne with the four living creatures, the elder points out, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he came and took it out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And he took the book, and we fell down and worshipped him, and we sang a new song. Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals. You're the only one who can bring justice. Not just because you're sovereign, but because you're a sufferer, you do understand. You're the lion and you're the lamb. And listen, when we get to the end of history, we will all look at Christ and we will be able to say, yes, he is the one to bring justice because he understands the pain. He entered it. So yes, we can say as sufferers who see evil every day at one way or another, that God is sovereign over it. And he's not just some cruel, unjust man who just lets, or God who just lets it all happen. He cares. And the cross is the proof of it. And because of what Jesus did here, he will be a victor. He, he overcomes evil. He undoes it doesn't just judge it, all because of the cross. So we learn he knows what to do with evil, and he knows, he knows how to use it for purposes beyond we, what we could imagine. That's the first thing we learn. He's sovereign, and he's a sufferer. Well, his suffering also tells us about his love. How much does God love? Well, Romans 5.8 says that the cross, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even at our worst, he died for us. When we didn't even want it, that's what the cross signifies. Remember we said last week, we were all enemies. Nobody wanted it. And yet he died for people that were his enemies. So we see his love. And it tells us something about the whole hymn. It tells us something about why God created. It tells us, it 
because, because we look at the cross, we can see why he did all of this. Why he began to create it all, to show love, to love to the fullest. God is love. How's he going to show that love? That something's going to have to go wrong for him to demonstrate it. Something's going to have to go wrong for him to show it. So it tells us that behind the rationale, really behind all of creation, is a God of redeeming love. You know, if you love anything, you're going to suffer. Most of the angst that you and I feel, a lot of the angst, a lot of the pain we feel in life is because we love. And if you love, if you love, if you love, you're going to suffer. And, that, and God is not an exception to that. You can't love anything without suffering. A great deal of our suffering comes from loving. I mean, even your pet. I was, uh, I was listening to a comedian here not long ago who was sort of uh, uh, whining about his cat and the aggravation of this cat that he loves and what he puts up with with that cat. And then he said, one day... Uh, I heard something at the door, and I looked out the blinds. He's a single guy, older man but single, looked out the door and saw a baby kitten. And his, his first thought, you know, what's the kitten doing there? The second thought, he just said he just started rocking around his house going, Dad, come it, Dad, come it. I'm going to open that door and have to love that cat. And I'm going to have double the problems when I get in here and open that door. And he was just saying, yeah, that's what happens. He was explaining that I'm going to open the door and I'm going to love that cat and it's going to make me miserable. <laughs> and I know it's going to make me miserable. That's how we got one of our dogs. That's how we got our dog. Showed up at the door. We told Mike, you can't have a dog unless one shows up at the door. This was Gail's sort of solution to getting a dog. And dang it, if one showed up. And, uh, and so he said, you can't love without suffering. And so here's God. So what does the cross say? God loves. And let me tell you how much God loves. Because you know what the worst, you know what one of the worst pains, you know what one of the worst things you can suffer? Is a loss of love. It's a loss of love. So that means that... <laughs> Christ felt both of those all in a moment. Because he loved us so much, he was willing to suffer on our behalf. And at the same time, feel the other pain of losing the love of his father for just a moment. And Christ entered into the worst kind of suffering you can for sinners, you and me. That's a demonstration of love. So you might say, well, my life's a mess. I don't, I don't have a lot of peace. I don't really have a plan. I haven't thought about all of reality. I don't really have hope. I can be self-destructive, very self-centered. I don't really think I'm worth loving. I don't think somebody like him could love me. You could think that. 
except that this text will tell you that you couldn't be more wrong. You could not be more wrong about God's love. In Colossians 2, when Paul is talking about sins, he makes this incredible comment here uh, about our sins. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them and triumphed over them. Look, uh, canceled out the debt of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and he took them out of the way, look, and he nailed them to a cross right there in history. Whatever was wrong had to be nailed to that cross. Whatever we owed, whatever debt we owed, he paid. That's how much he loves you. It was nailed to a cross. The cross is how you know God loves you. And then finally, this becomes a paradigm for living. This becomes a paradigm for living. This is what it means to follow Christ. Because remember what he said when you came and you, and you followed him for the first time? He said, pick yours up. Remember there was two disciples that were saying, hey, we'd rather have seats next to you at the throne. We'd rather be supreme. We'd rather live high on the hog. And Jesus says, no, you, you take up a cross and follow me. Because if you deny yourself, you'll live. That's where this comes in. If you want to go up, go down. So it becomes a paradigm for life. Whatever God thought about being high and mighty, you know, we say it of each other, you know, she thinks she's so high and mighty. We say that of each other. Because there's something about that high and mighty place. We hate it in each other. Even though very often we, we like being there, but we hate it in each other. Whatever, whatever God thought it meant to be supreme, he was willing to give it up and become a part of creation. And not only become a part of what he created, but enter right into the, our human reality and, and suffer the worst possible thing you can suffer. Both physically and mentally and spiritually, relationally, in every way. So Stuart writes, because he himself is the highest and the lowest, thoroughly historical, yet outside of all the normal categories of men. It's a great quote. He's the highest and the lowest, and he teaches us how to live. And so C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, when he's talking about the resurrection and he's talking about the incarnation and then the resurrection, he says, we catch sight of a new key principle, the power of the higher, just in so far it is truly higher, just as in so far as it is truly higher to come down, the power of the greater to include the less. Everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. How great is God? Willing to enter our sin, our world, our history. And so that's how we live. That's the way uh, we're supposed to do life. Um, you ever play King of the Castle? Play King of the Castle on the beach. Uh, one of these commentators was uh, explaining how we think of sovereignty. We want to be King of the Castle. So he writes, uh, one child stands up on top of the castle at the beach. 
taunts the others by proclaiming, I'm king of the castle. Others then attempt to dethrone the king by scrambling onto the castle and supplanting the incumbent. The result is a melee in which there is much shoving and pushing, which most find that their reign at the top is precarious and brief. In the end, the game has to stop because the castle has been destroyed by the, by the assaults upon it. Which you learn real quickly that uh, without humility, we create chaos. When we're high and mighty, when we're sitting high and mighty, usually we're creating more chaos than we're solving. But anyway, he talks about the game and he says, the game shows what children assume about being supreme. The struggle for ascendancy among the powers and individuals results in ruin. It contrasts dramatically with what we see in Christ in the cross. Christ wins his victory and is proclaimed king as he's lifted on a cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. And it gives us a glimpse of a divine plan so vast in scale that we can barely fathom it. We can barely fathom that God's plan for dealing with sin and evil was to come this low, to absorb it, So I'll tell you, if you know you're sitting high and mighty, right now you might have some evil to absorb. In other words, it needs to stop with you. You don't need to make any more. Don't create any more chaos than is already created. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's somewhere. You have the ability right now to create more sin and chaos. You're going to have to absorb some pain. Or maybe you just need to take a loss. You need to quit fighting for something you're fighting for. That you just thought was so important. Say, I'm so high and mighty. I'm going to fight for that and win it. Maybe it's a fight you need to stop fight altogether, even if it means you've got to take a loss. That's what this is saying to us. This is what Christ did for us. Or maybe you just flat need to make a sacrifice. You're not going to just take a loss, but you need to, you need to do something sacrificial. And I, one of the, uh, Tim Keller um, gives this picture when he thinks about Christ coming to the earth. He calls it, he says, it's, uh, it's the adventure of all adventures. It's sort of the, the prototype of adventures is what he calls it, okay? Uh, the adventure of all adventures. Because, you know, in an adventure story, a guy who's got things going pretty well. Smooth, safe, comfortable, easy. Smooth, safe, comfortable, easy. I mean, could anyone have had it any more smooth, safe, comfortable than Christ? Now, this is the adventure of all adventures. And then something prompts him to leave that comfort zone and then come to some uh, the rescue of something or to accomplish something great. In other words, you've got to enter all kinds of dangers. That's what makes us long for adventures. And every adventure sort of, you know, finds its ultimate reality in this adventure. Because Christ not only leaves the supreme comfort zone, comes into the su- supreme danger, ultimate danger. No one experienced anything worse. 
And maybe that's an adventure we need to take. So he says, if you look at it this way, I mean, the fact that we constantly keep pursuing the easy, nice life is is a little bit against the grain of who Christ is and what he's done. So if you're always looking for the easy way out, the way that it doesn't cost and it isn't loss and it's easy, then you're you're not going to be... That lack of humility, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to destroy yourself. Because God says the only ultimate way to deal with it is to be a servant, is to pay a price. You've got to pay a price. If you're going to love something, you're going to pay a price. If you're going to forgive something, you're going to pay a price. That's how you and I are to live. So maybe it's about being, don't be afraid of sacrifice. So that's the hymn. And that's what it teaches us. He's sovereign and he's a sufferer. I can never look at God and say, you have no idea. I can, I can never look at God and think that he, doesn't, that he couldn't love me. Because the cross is the proof. And when I look at that cross, I realize that I've, I've got to be willing to give things up. I had lunch with a guy this week. Uh, and we were talking about the hymn that we're learning here in Colossians. And he says, I hear what you're saying. And let me, let me get this straight. If he's everything... I'm nothing. I said, you got it. I said, you got it. And you know what? We can sit here all day long and worship God for being everything. The real answer, the real question is, do do we know how to enter that same sacrifice in our reality and worlds? Because evidently, if this is a picture of how reality works, if ultimate victory, if ultimate victory comes from this paradigm of death and resurrection, it's got to be true of us too. And one day we'll stand in Revelation at the end of time. We'll stand there. And after the, the lion and the lamb has opened the book, we will all stand there dumbfounded. And this is what we will sing. All these living creatures, elders, myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of people from every tribe, language, and tongue will say this, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven So we come back to our hymn. That's everything. Everything ever made. On earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in the sea. I heard them all saying, everyone will say in unison. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. 
because of what Christ did. It's everything. And that's what Paul's trying to say. It's everything. You bow your heads. You're sitting here today and you don't know him. You've never really come to grips with how much he loves you, how much he's done for you, how much he lovingly and sovereignly cares for the entire universe and runs it with a plan and demonstrated that he can be trusted because he was willing to enter our pain and not just enter our pain, but take our place on a cross. Nail our debt to a cross. If you're sitting in here today and you've never trusted Christ with your life, you've never seen the gospel, the death and the resurrection, accomplished in history is the answer to all reality. Maybe this morning you can put your trust and faith in him. Father, I pray that for anyone in this room. Bring this truth home to us, Lord. Who are still here enduring hard things, longing for the day when justice is done, and not just when justice is done, but when evil is undone. Fixed, repaired, recreated, only you, as a lion and a lamb, capable of providing that. In Jesus' name, amen.